I can't remember exactly when it, w- it was, but I do remember um, what was going on. At some point when I was, had either just graduated from college or was about to, something was going on in my family of, of four that was just sort of driving me crazy. And um, so I went to talk to my parish priest. I have a, a wonderful mother and, and father and a younger brother. But I went to talk to the parish priest just about what all was going on. And I've long since forgotten what it, what it was. But I vividly remember the conversation with this priest. And I came and I, I bared my heart and I told, told him story after story about what was going on, what was hurting my feelings, and why I was confused. And I reached this great crescendo. And I said, Father Joe, I, I come from a dysfunctional family. And he said, don't ever say that again. Just say family. Dysfunctional family is redundant. I think that's got a little bit to do with the rest of the sermon, but I'm certain you might find that helpful as we're on the eve of the holidays. So use that, use that as you wish. There's a really good article, recent article by David Brooks in The Atlantic, and it's about families. If you want to find it, you just Google David Brooks Atlantic nuclear family, but it's really an essay that's about the extended family and the power and wisdom of extended families when, when nuclear families aren't just so nuclear and small, when you've got this array of, of grandchildren and cousins and second cousins and crazy uncles and just that, that larger extended family. Now, the extended family has really broken down in the last couple of decades. We really know this in Denver because some of you might be like me. I'm not from here. A lot of us have moved for economic reasons, better jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> but what David Brooks talks about is how these, these extended families, um, we need to figure out how to, how to do them in new ways if we had to move because they serve a really important function for children. When children are an intense nuclear family, sometimes it's too intense. And what what Brooks calls cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents is shock absorbers. When the family gets too intense, that they serve as shock absorbers, just different ways of doing things, different perspectives. And that really resonates with me. My dad is an electrical engineer, and I knew from a very young age that the Lord was not calling me to be an electrical engineer. Or to take a much more serious example, imagine a child whose sexual orientation is not that of their parents. And just how much, you know, without cousins or or, or siblings or others that they can, can relate to and see different forms of sexual orientation, just think about how much more courage and pressure, you know, is upon how much more pressure is upon that child and how much more courage it takes to find freedom and be who God needs you to be. I think about all of that because of this really wonderful and I think comforting gospel story. And it's a story that's that's formally called the visitation of Mary and Elizabeth. Sometimes in Christian tradition, Mary and Elizabeth are called cousins. We actually don't know if they're cousins. But the angel Gabriel early in this story says that Elizabeth is Mary's relative. And they meet together right before giving birth. Elizabeth is the mother of the one who will be John the Baptist. 
This story, as Luke tells it, or as we have it tonight, is really, really short. In the past, sometimes I, I used to hear stories like that, and I, like this one, and I'd get a little frustrated that they don't tell us, give us more detail. Like, what did Mary and Elizabeth talk about? But the older I've gotten, I now take that as permission to imagine whatever it is I thought they talked about. And of course, we know exactly what they're talking about. They're about to give birth. They're talking about how they're doing, how close they are, what they're feeling, what their hopes and fears are, what they hope their child will turn out to be. We know exactly what they're talking about. Eventually, Jesus and John the Baptist are, are born, and, and we don't know if they're second cousins or whatever the relationship is but exactly between Jesus and John the Baptist. But I'm certain that they did not suffer from sibling rivalry. They weren't brothers, and that's a really good thing. And it kind of explains in part how these two very powerful speakers um, were not competitive with one another the way siblings often are. For example, John the Baptist, as bold as John the Baptist is, really defers to Jesus. He says in another gospel, for example, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. We know they're not siblings. He also says about Jesus, I baptize with water, he baptizes with water and fire. This meeting of Mary and Elizabeth is also a meeting of minds. Luke really portrays um, Mary's theological mind her theological imagination, her poetic imagination even. At the beginning of the story, which starts with the, the, the angel Gabriel telling Mary that she will conceive and bear a child who's the savior of the world, Mary listens, and it's Luke who points out that in the middle of that conversation, Mary says to the angel Gabriel, I imagine looking him in the eyes, staring him down and saying, how can this be? And I imagine there's a long pause while the angel Gabriel thinks carefully about exactly how to respond to Mary. And you see as the story continues, Mary's great theological mind, because this story keeps going and it flowers into what we call the Song of Mary. You know the Song of Mary because we just sang it um, between the two lessons. When Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, and that God the Savior is filling the hungry with good things, that God the Savior is casting down the mighty from their thrones and lifting up the lowly. I sometimes imagine Mary's song is a lullaby that she sings to Jesus as she cradles him because there's a straight line that one can draw from the Song of Mary to the Beatitudes. As Jesus grows up, he grows up to sound a lot like his mother. You remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the meek and lowly, for they will be blessed. He learned a lot from his mother's mind and poetic and prophetic imagination. We read this story right before Christmas Eve. Mary and Elizabeth are preparing. 
And so are all of us. We're really preparing at the cathedral um, for what will come and who will come on Christmas Eve. I'm sure you're preparing in your own way, whether you're hosting or preparing to travel or whatever it is that you're doing. Many of us have a long list of things to, to prepare, to-do list this time of year. And as we prepare, whether you're really busy or kind of busy or not that busy, as we prepare, let us pause and find times to remember why Christmas Eve matters so much. Christmas Eve is really the continuation of the meeting that first occurred between Mary and Elizabeth. On Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or then the Christmas season, we meet together, whether it's two people or 2,000 people, we meet together in expectation that Christ is near, that Christ is near, and that when Christ is near, that God the Savior will fill the hungry with good things.